Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today... We're welcoming Ingrid Rojas Contreras, the author of Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which is what we're here to celebrate. A Barnes and Noble discover, yeah, great new writer's pick. Uh, she was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. Her essays and short stories have appeared in Nylon, the LA Review of Books, Electric Literature, Guernica, Huffington Post, among others. She currently teaches writing to immigrant high school students as part of a San Francisco Arts Commission initiative, bringing artists into public schools might ask about that, I don't know. <laughs> I'd like to hear more. And uh, she's also known for her work as a book columnist for KQED, uh, the Bay Area NPR affiliate. And joining Ingrid is Lillian Rivera, who lives here in LA. And she's an award-winning writer and author of, young adult novel, of the, young adult novels, deal, the young adult novel Dealing in Dreams, which is forthcoming from Simon & Schuster in March of this year. And The Education of Margot Sanchez, which has already been released. We have that up at the front, along with Ingrid's book, of course. And her work has appeared in Lenny Letter, Tin House, Los Angeles Times, and Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine. Uh, please join me in welcoming these two writers. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming. Oh, this situation. OK. Yes. Um, you're going to read first, right? Thank yes. you so much for coming out on a Saturday. You know, the moon, what's up? Are we ready? Something's going to be revealed today. I don't know what. Are we feeling it? <laughs> I'm feeling it. <laughs> okay, so um, Ingrid, you're going to read a bit. I'm yes. super excited to hear you read. Thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming out. Um, we'll get, the, the full moon is going to be okay. This is what I'm telling myself. Um, so uh, yeah, this is my, my debut novel. I worked on it for about uh, six years, and it just came out uh, last summer. It's, it's a story that happens in Colombia, in Bogota, and there are two girls who are living through uh, the 90s. Um, and it's, it's a dangerous time, um, so I'm going to read to you from one of their point of views. Okay. So this is, um, this is Chula. All day we waited for Papa. Mama yelled, he was on his way, stop asking. I turned on the television. Everything on the television was about Pablo Escobar. There was a banner of text running at the bottom of the screen. Breaking news, the biggest manhunt in history. A reporter was saying Pablo Escobar had escaped and that he had not been in a high security prison as the government wanted the country to believe, but he had been living in a high security mansion. He's free, he can come to Bogota. Chula, hold on a minute, I'm trying to listen, Mama said. Every channel on the television was showing specials. Reporters stood inside the high-security prison, showing off the water beds, jacuzzis, fine carpets, marble tiles, the sauna, the bar with the discotheque, the telescopes, radio equipment, and so many weapons. Grenades, machine guns, pistols, machetes. He had been running the cartels from prison. Finally, we found the channel that was talking about the details of the escape. There was an animated map of the prison. The prison was nested in the hilly mountainside of Medellin. Little army men swept to surround the building. The reporter said that since the prison guards were all Pablo Escobar's men, the escape was easy. Pablo Escobar and his men were thought to have escaped at the hour of the fog. That's because they slipped unseen past the battalions surrounding the prison, and since up in the hills a heap of women's clothes was later discovered, it was thought that Pablo Escobar and his men went out into the mountains in disguise, a row of ladies walking into the clouds. When it was dusk, Mama said Papa was late because of traffic. Then she said maybe there had been a landslide. I thought of car accidents, hospitals, women in distress, hitchhikers. 
My sister Cassandra asked, what did he say exactly when you talked to him, Mama? Mama shrugged. He said he was leaving right away. He was going to get his bag and drive home. The television droned on in the background, Pablo Escobar this, Pablo Escobar that. I huddled with Mama on the couch. Night fell. It began to rain. I was falling asleep when Mama rose to her feet and went about the house moving things from one table to another. Her bathrobe ballooned about her as she bent and picked things up from the floor. She dropped a dictionary into a cabinet drawer and said, his car probably broke down on the highway. Mama scrubbed her face with her hands. For the first time, I noticed the color. Her forehead was white, but her cheekbones and overlip glistened in a sickly green. I imagined, uh, I tried to imagine Papa's car breaking down. Then I imagined Papa bursting through the front windshield of his car in an accident. I averted my eyes, but the image was there. The tips of my ears tingled. Go to sleep, Mama said. I'll wake you when your father comes. I want to wait, Mama. I'm sure he's fine. Go and I'll wake you. I went to the attic and crawled into bed next to Cassandra, the patter of rain over the world of our dreams. The next day downstairs, Mama was still smoking in the living room, and the television was emitting a loud, continuous beep, showing a static image of color bars. Mama, Cassandra was saying, shaking her shoulder, Mama, did Papa come? Mama narrowed her eyes until they closed. She sucked her cigarette, swallowing the smoke, then it came forked out of her nostrils. Cassandra shook her again. Mama's eyes broke open. What is it? Did Papa call? What time is it? It's seven. Mama sat up and put out her cigarette in the ashtray. She picked up the telephone and then held it in her hand. The telephone button slided fluorescent green, and the dim sound of the dial tone filled the room. Mama, why don't you dial? I'm thinking. Mama, dial, what are you waiting for? But the color drained from her. She was looking into the distance as she replaced the receiver. Then she was on her feet, braiding her fingers at the nape of her head. And then she was sitting against the wall, hiding her face between her knees. It will be okay, your papa is okay, she called after a while. Her voice built a new anxiety in me. The police in Medellin found a Pablo Escobar hideout. The reporter was standing fully dressed in the shower, showing how a young cop, who for no reason wondered whether the apartment bought with laundered money had running water, had turned the shower knob. What happened next was that the shower wall swung out like a door, and there, below a few steps, was a small apartment. The reporter motioned for the cameras to come in. He flicked on a switch. Everything was in disarray. There was a bed. Here, you may imagine, the subject of the biggest manhunt in history peacefully slept while the police searched the apartment. The reporter lifted a coffee cup left on the nightstand. When police first entered, this coffee was still warm. The room was empty and the police left to search the vicinity, but little did they know, the reporter said. Walking to a wall where he pulled on a cord, there was another hideout within the hideout. A small door swung out like, uh, like a door a small swung out from the wall and revealed a tight crawl space. Pablo Escobar probably sat here, literally a hairbreadth away from the authorities, biding his time to sneak away. The telephone rang all day, but Mama holed up in her bedroom with her door shut, so I stayed with the television. At night, Mama turned into a black widow. Her bed was stripped and the pillows and blankets were on the floor. I found her sitting directly on the mattress. The firelight of the candle clasped between her thighs threw a satin sheen on her hair, and her contorted fingers radiated orange shadows. Her cheekbones and forehead glistened, but her eyes hung back. She was braiding the air with her fingers, mumbling prayers. When I touched her, her body crumbled under my fingers as if it were ash. She curved by the candle, crying. Bowled over, she rocked on her thighs and howled. It was a pained, low, guttural howl. It washed through my entire body. Everything was terrible. I howled as well. My eyes sprang with tears and my sight doubled. Mama with four hands covering her face saying, what are we going to do, Chula? What in the world are we going to do? Thank you. Thank God. I'm, I don't know about you guys, but I was like on the verge of tears. Like, <laughs> it's like so 
If you guys haven't read this, it's so powerful. And I was really, I'm really happy that I, was, I got to hear you read it. Thank you. Um, so, like you mentioned before, oh, before we even start, Liz, can we just talk about how, like, Sandra Cisneros and Julia Alvarez um, blurbed your book? That was amazing. <laughs> I, I felt like I had won some kind of lottery, and the next day there was going to be, you know, I was going to be struck by lightning. <laughs> that was going to be it. It was like the reinas. They were just like, I'm, I'm blessing you now, and now you could have your quinceanera, and that's it. Like, you're, like, done. <laughs> like, I, I just know. felt like, yeah, that's, I mean, but it makes sense, right? Because this is, like, as epic as anything that they would have written as oh, well thank you um okay so fruit of the drunken tree it's told by like you mentioned the alternating points of view you have um the 70 year old 77 year old chula who lives in this gated community right with her parents and her older si sister in colombia and then there's petrona and she's 13 years old and she comes to live with them um as their live-in maid Okay, can you walk us through to me, like, what was the first image you had when you were, when you started writing this novel? What, who came to you first? So, yeah, the very first, the very first scene that I wrote was, um, so Chula and her sister are in, in the, in the, in, in front of their house, in the, what's that called? Porch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In the porch of their house, and um, and they're watching as Petona arrives for the first mm -hmm. time, and it's this moment where it there was a lot of tension in that moment, and I I felt the the class and kind of like the the gap between mm -hmm. these two experiences, mm -hmm. um, and and they're like looking at each other, kind of trying to suss each other out. Um, and and the girls are kind of very taken with with this uh, you know slightly older girl, who you know as young girls they they are generally uh, very taken with older girls, um, but then they know that she lives in in a settlement which uh, is uh, where most displaced people in Colombia would live in a settlement. Um, so they so they know that about her and they know that she comes from a very different. Uh, life experience and, and that moment of them kind of seeing each other mm -hmm. um, was where it first started for me. Mm. Um, my thing with um, that was always for me like shocking was that the, the reminder of how young Petrona is because mm -hmm. she's only 13 but she is like basically the savior of this family. She's um, you know and she's forced to make these kind of like huge decisions that um, affect everything about her life, right? Um, but my my thing is that I feel like all of the women in this in your story, Chula and the mother Alma and um, Petrona, are making these life like I would say sometimes flawed decisions, mm -hmm. just trying to save them save the family. Um, what was it that you wanted to kind of that struggle between them? Because there is definitely from the get, we're talking about class, but there is something very that unifies both all of these women that they're struggling to like um, claim, like stake, like make sure that their family survives no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was thinking a lot about um, what surviving survival, um, and in 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 South America, like with Petrona's family. So her her family were they were farmers before, but they lost their land because of the altercations between guerrillas and paramilitaries. So they they lost their land. They were displaced. They came to the city, and then she's the only person in her family that can work, um, and she has younger younger brothers that live in the house with her. Um, and this is true of things that I observed in Colombia, where like even if if a woman is, is slightly older and she's like more capable, um, her younger brothers would still be considered the men in the house, mm -hmm. um, and they would they would still be considered to have more power than than her. Um, so so that was you know like I was always thinking about Petrona in that sense, like how does she survive surviving? Um, and for for Alma, there's there's different. Um, but similar social things happening where she's a, she's a very strong woman and she's very um, opinionated, but she's shackled by what it, what it means to be a mother and what it means to be a mother in South America in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, 
while her, you know, her husband goes to work and she, she's just there at home um, and mm -hmm. kind of like uh, having all that potential and then trying to make the best decisions that she can. And yeah, everyone is, is not making the right choice. I feel like for all of them, they're kind of trying to break away from the roles that they're meant to have. So there's mo those moments with Petrona who um, you realize that she just wants to have a boyfriend. You know, like she's like, oh, there's an attention of someone, you know, even if that attention later on is revealed to be something else. But still, there's those moments of like, I'm going to break the role that is supposed to be meant for me. I'm supposed to take care of the family. I'm supposed to work here. But that also goes with Alma. And that's what I love. Like, I found that really fascinating was that Alma and Petrona are both trying to break down the, the roles that they're, they're mm -hmm. meant to have. Yeah, I th that was something that that um, I you know grew up around my my mother and just all my aunts and it felt like such a such a sacred place to to be mm -hmm. and one of the there's there's one story about my mom that I think about constantly and I think I was I was thinking about that story while writing the book and even after writing the book like I still think about this story. But when she was when she was a little girl, my my grandmother would would tell her, "You have to wash your your brother's clothes." And the and her brothers were older than she was, maybe like seven years older. Mm -hmm. um, and they would she she would tell her. My grandmother would tell my mother. So when you know when they come to dinner, you like serve them first. <laughs> And then you can sit down and eat. And mm -hmm. when you know when they're finished, like you pick up their dishes and mm -hmm. then you wash them. So she was getting instructed into doing all of these things. Um, and what she thought at the time, she was she was like nine years old. She thought like, well, I'm my muscles are so much smaller. <laughs> like why should I do all this labor when they seem more capable? But so my grandmother wasn't hearing any of that. And she she gave my mom a beating. Mm, mm. So the next day it was like the same thing. It's like okay, wash your brother's clothes, pick up the dishes. And so my my mother said no again. Mm. And she was thinking like, if I say no enough times, like one of us is gonna give up and it's not gonna be me. <laughs> but <laughs> oh so she was beat up again. And the the second beating was so bad that the next day, the third day, she was like, okay, I need new approach. <laughs> Um, and she walked, she walked into the kitchen and she got a pair of scissors and then she cut her hair as, as close to her head as possible. Wow. And then she walked up to my grandmother and she said, I'm a boy now. I don't have to do any of the things oh that you say. God, yes. <laughs> that is amazing. So my grandmother wow. was so surprised by this whole thing <laughs> that she was like, okay, I will not make you <laughs> like do Clearly, you're different. <laughs> like, you've somehow outwitted the system, and I'm not sure how. So, so this I, is the yeah. stuff that you're invoking. Exactly, in your, yeah. Yes, I totally understand that. I, would, I went through the same thing, but I was not going to cut my hair, or I just <laughs> served whoever was had to be served. I, what I, the thing about with Alma, and I'll, you know, we'll talk about Petrona next, but is that they're living in this gated community, but they're not um, really kind of accepted in this community right. at all. You would think, like, they're the outsiders in this community. Can you talk a, just a little bit about that? Like, Yeah, so the the family um, has, uh, they come from a, from a poor background, and then they're living in this middle-class gated community. Um, and there's so, the, when I was growing up in South America, it was, there's the, the way that people treat each other is it's the, the class is underlined so, so much and mm. it kind of reflects also in the color of your skin. So even if everyone is generally brown, it's like I'm slightly, you know, white, more, just more white than you. So mm. mm -hmm. that means that my ancestors were better and basically your ancestors were slaves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and the yeah people people in the neighborhood for this family they're constantly um you know saying things about her like how does she get out of poverty like she must have slept her way out of it um i'm sure that she's like a former prostitute that we have like living with us 
in this community. Um, so there's that's what she has to contend with. Mm-hmm. Now, Petrona, I mean, you read read any like her voice, um, her point of view, her story. It just kind of breaks your heart, mm-hmm. right? But what I so appreciated about the way you wrote her is that yes she's coming from poverty and you're very detailed with when it comes to the things that you know her life her lifestyle and all those things but there's never a moment when you write about that it becomes like a caricature Mm. or that you're either explaining it to it like you're bringing in you know those of people who've never been there this is like you know the safari tour right like it's not you're not doing that you give it really hard and just how is it that you were able to write it? Because I, you know, I sometimes there's that balance. Like I'm always writing about class, but I don't want to to fall into these kind of cliches, mm. you know. So I think um, I think it maybe came from. Well, there were two things. My so my extended family. Well, both my parents come from very poor backgrounds. Mm. So when we, I grew up middle class in Bogota, but when we when we took vacation, we would go back and see their families. Mm. Um, and it, it was just so different than, than our lives. Um, you know, my grandmother always had dirt floors and, but it was so joyful and beautiful Mm. and amazing at the same time in a way that our lives in Bogota were not. Mm. Um, so I think I, I traveled between those two things a lot. Um, and then when I, when I was growing up, um, you know, the some of the experiences in the book were based on on things that happened, mm-hmm. um, and so the character of, of Petrona is is based on a, on a few women, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, my mother would always take in young girls who who had been displaced, and they would live with us, and they would be our nanny, and they would do maids work, mm-hmm. um, and they were it was just so. Uh, just shocking to be growing up and you're going about your middle class life like you're trying to go to school and get good grades and um, thinking about how you're going to make a living and you know trying to figure that out and then someone living in in the house with you uh, the they're living like a day-to-day emergency Mm -hmm. you know Um, and that was just uh, it was just shocking to me and I would um I, I would spend a lot of time with them and uh, we we went to visit them mm-hmm. all the time. And so um, I did know, I did experience like what I did see what, what those differences were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I, I never uh, got over how, how stark it is. There's something like that's unique too when I think about like Petrona having someone live in your house like that for me like growing up you know we always had fake cousins cousins who mm-hmm. end up living with you because we were you know we lived in New York so they were coming from Puerto Rico and and it was this moment of like these strange strangers strange men like and and becomes like this kind of like what's their history about you know you and you're young and you're just inventing and I totally could relate with with um, Chula and her kind of like her obsession mm-hmm. with Petrona and wanting and and especially because Petrona doesn't speak for mm-hmm. like almost uh, for the first few chapters about it that to me was really amazing to read about that moment of like even in the midst of all the sadness and the violence there was this this moment of childlike of like youth and childlike and mystery yeah. with the kid. There was like adventure and mystery even mm-hmm. in this gated community when it com- when it comes to like Chula, which I loved. Yeah, that, w- that was one thing that I really wanted to to capture as I was thinking back about what it what it was like for me to grow up in this time in Colombia. Um, like we used to play, you know, like kids here play like cops and robbers. Robbers. We would play um, Pablo Escobar and cops. <laughs> And so, and we knew all kinds of morbid details about the things that he would do, and mm-hmm. we would like incorporate it into our into our game. Um, and and there was a there was a way in which, when you're surrounded by by so many things, if you're a kid, you just kind of absorb it and then turn it into this play thing, mm-hmm. um, and you don't stop having those those childlike joys. They just become 
like slightly more disturbing childlike <laughs> toys <laughs> just slightly different games so yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so we you know you meant obviously you mentioned Pablo Escobar Escobar and everyone like America is so obsessed with this story. I mean, mm -hmm. you look at Netflix, it's like, what more, another movie? Like, it's yeah. like, how many times? And I am obsessed, you know, like, I definitely watch Narcos, like, you know, obsessed. Um, but, okay, so this is the thing I wanted to ask about. Uh, my thing about, in your novel, Escobar kind of permeates these women's lives, but he's, like, ultimately, he's a ghost, mm -hmm. right? And I felt that, in a way, so is um, Chula's father, Yeah, is a ghost. Um, what? Okay, so what are you trying to say about these men who are like not there really, but permeate and just sort of like take over? You know? Yeah, you know, I I think part of it is that um, I just love women so much that when I was writing the book, I was like, yeah, but what do the women really think? And like, what are the women really doing? Um, and the the other part of it is that I think I wanted to explore how. Uh, at least in Colombia, like the the world is built by men, mm -hmm. like the the power structures and all the rules are are put there by men, mm -hmm. and then you have women who have to contend with with it. So to me, that was a more interesting story. I think we've had so many stories about, you know, what what did Pablo Escobar think, and was he a good person, was he a bad person? Um, that it's just not interesting to mm -hmm. me. I'm more interested in how do you know, centering women and how do women survive that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is there, can you share what was the hardest scene for you to write? Um, and if you don't want to write, and if you don't want to share it, then tell me what was the easiest. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think, well, with, without, okay. Without well, like spoiling, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's, I don't know how to, okay. Well, one, I'll change because then I'll spoil. I can't do that one. But there's, it, one revealing part is was the hardest part. Mm. But the, the other. <laughs> the other part the that other was part second hardest. <laughs> was, I would say, the ending. Endings were, mm. I think they, uh, well, I personally want the, the, the ending of a novel to both reflect everything that's happened before, mm to close the story, to have symmetry to the beginning, and to also point to the to a future that is untold. Mm -hmm. So I wanted all of that in one line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's and I, I was rewriting the last line up until the, la the very last moment. Mm. Like I already had, um, yeah, it was right before, like all the copy edits had been done, and I was still like, telling my editor, like, hold on, I can get it, I can get it. <laughs> wow. Um, and I just remember just, like, pouring myself, like, a, a big glass of wine, like, drink it and all, and then just reading the last chapter and then pausing at the last moment before the, the last line. And then it just came to me, mm. and it felt so good. Oh, like, good. Just finally. But I was, you know, searching for that line since, you know, the very first drafts of the book. Do you have an idea of how you want to end your novel? Like, um, like no, I don't. No, I usually because I like the process of discovery more. Hmm. But uh, once I had that first draft and I knew what the skeleton was, yeah. then I then I start to make plans and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, oh, I this is a quote that you said in a, in, a, in an interview recently, and I want to talk about the work that you're doing with the immigrants kids too. I feel like we were both talking about because we were doing similar things with young people. But, um, and I love this. You said, um, I think that the stories where someone can move clouds or can read the future, or maybe someone like the girl in my novel is forced into doing an act because she is threatened and her family is threatened, all those things almost don't have room to breathe. I think immigration and stories of other cultures force that oxygen. Yes. <laughs> Can we like, yes, let's get into that quote. I forgot where it's from. I'm sorry. I, I should have attributed. But um, talk to me about the, the work that you're doing with these young kids. And I love that because Thank I feel you. like that's my way of like, even though I complain about having to, oh, I have to go hang out with these kids. And as soon as I get there, I, I get filled. I get like the fillness. Like I'm like, oh, I'm supposed yeah. to be doing this. I get you. I mean, high school students are a lot. They're a lot. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I it was it was right after the the election, mm-hmm. and uh, I felt this urgency to do something, um, and I just wrote this. Uh, there was a there was a city grant that was coming up, and I wrote the grant as quickly as I could, and I. Um, got some partnerships going with the high school it like within two weeks like it was wow. crazy that I was able to do it um, but I, I I just really felt that you know what what is the most when it comes to stories like who are the most what's the most vulnerable uh, population in that mm. and to me it's like the kids who who are seeing all of that play out in the news and maybe they don't have someone who is telling them like your story matters and like how you got here matters, um, and you know you have a place here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I so I really wanted to do that. And um, when when I go in, we do I've done um, collaborations with artists, mm-hmm. and one of the things that the students really liked that we did uh, last year is we. So there's this, um, Trump had like a uh, executive order uh, that was banning sanctuary cities. So we took, we took this order and then we had the, the kids do erasure poetry with it mm-hmm. so that maybe you could turn it into the opposite executive order um, or you could turn it into how you feel about being an immigrant. Um, there was one student who was able, with the title and with all the text, um, he turned that executive order and it just it, into saying Latinos are afraid of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I we got a we printed the the executive order on these wooden panels, and then they taped over the words that they wanted to keep and painted over the rest. Oh, nice! And so then they peeled when they peeled back the the tape, it would be. It was both a painting and a poem, and we had an exhibition, and we, you know, got them a gallery show in the city, um, and it it felt really powerful, you know, that that they could walk into a gallery and have their their poems kind of like elevated in this way, and it was right by civic center, so mm-hmm. a lot of um, city official people were coming to see that too, um, and it just feels like such important oxygen yeah like it's you like I want to bring that into I want to you know if nobody else uh is providing that space and I want to force that space into mm-hmm. happening I love that so much and I totally agree like it's like even the simplest thing of of poetry or just um let's write a s- short story about monsters and I'm always it always comes up who's the monster that they're gonna write about you know and it um but there's also joy. There's also like jokes and, you know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I love that. So um, I have a really important question because and then we're going to have everyone ask a question. Um, are you a fan of Bad Bunny and what is your favorite <laughs> song? No, I'm kidding. Okay, that's not the question. <laughs> My question is, have you seen Alfonso Cuaron's Roma? Yes. And what is your hot take? Which I actually hate the word hot take, but I wanted to use it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Did you watch it? I did watch it. I thought so. It's. It, I thought it was beautiful. Hmm. It was a beautiful film. Um, I felt that he. I didn't. I. I felt like it was all from his point of view, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like he quite honored the indigenous point of view, the maid in the house. Mm-hmm. L- like he didn't quite get what that was, and yet he was still trying to write that. Yes. Um. So I. But. Uh, so that was a little bit of a letdown for me. Yeah. Um, gorgeous, though. Yeah. But disappointing. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So I and uh, before we start, like, um, I read that you're working on a memoir. Is that? Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit. So the so I'm working on a memoir, and it's so it's about my grandfather who was a curandero, and that's a faith healer. And so uh, people used to say that he had the power to move clouds. Yes. And then uh, my, so he was supposed to pass uh, the knowledge down because it had been passed to him, you know, from generations of fathers. Mm. But he didn't have a son that was suitable Mm. for that. So he kept saying, like, none of my sons have the testicles to be a curandero. (laughs) Um, 
So the only person that he thought could do it was my mother. Mm. But because she's a woman, it, he couldn't do it. Like something bad would happen. Uh, but then she had she had this accident where she lost her memory. And when she recovered it after eight months, she she could hear voices and she could see ghosts. So then, so then the family was like, "Oh, the like the gifts came to her anyway, mm. even if he didn't teach her." Um, and then I had an accident where I lost my memory. But when I came back to, I couldn't do any of the fancy things that she did. <laughs> I was gonna say, "Wait a minute!" So then I what know. happened? <laughs> So then the, the whole family was just very disappointed that I couldn't tell the future. <laughs> but so it's a story about it's it's a story about, you know, family and inheritance mm. and um, a lot of, you know, magical uh, things that I, I, I interviewed people that saw magical things happen. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, you're, you know, obviously fiction, but then you're writing memoir. I mean, do you, are you nervous about family reading it? I feel like whenever I'm like, yes, you're in the book, it's fiction, but you're definitely in it. <laughs> Buy it. <laughs> I wonder if, if Latino families are just more extroverted and they're just more into this idea because they love it. They're like, yeah, let right. me tell you more about myself. <laughs> Hold on, let me tell you the good part. You know, you're exactly. constantly feeding me stories. Like more stories that yeah. you can put in there. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay, so um, let's open it up some for some questions. You got? You guys want to ask? Well, I'll keep asking. I'll talk. Look. <laughs> no, if you guys have any questions for Ingrid or yes. Yeah, so the so uh, there is a translation by Guillermo Arreola, who's uh, from Mexico. So because it was translated into Mexican Spanish, I did take a look mm. and tried to make it make it more Colombian. Um, but it, it was a crazy experience because when I I wrote the book, I I was intent on being in the space where I was between languages, mm. and uh, I was I was watching a lot of CNN at the time, and you know how they have those interpreters. Um, they, you know, hear one language and they speak in another immediately. So I really wondered, like, what is going on in your brain when you're doing that? So while I was writing this book, I was pretending to be my own CNN interpreter. So I would, I would hear and I would imagine the story in Spanish, and then I would type it in English. Huh. So there's sometimes there's a little bit of strangeness in the language and it's because I'm doing this weird thing with it. Mm. But reading the translation was a trip because it, at times it felt like I had, like I had done, like this is maybe a translation, you know, and so then to read a translation of the translation, it was it just like a mess. Yeah. <laughs> it just gave me a headache. Uh, so it was really hard to to go through it and to make suggestions, but I did. And then it's so it's coming out in Colombia uh, later this year, mm. um, which I'm I'm very nervous about because I don't know how they're gonna react. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, you know, our unemployment rate is so high that there just are not, there's n not any jobs. So for a long time, it just has been like one of the few jobs that you can, that uh, specifically women can do when, you know, if you're pulled out of high school because you have to support your family, like that is the job that's there for you. Um, our, we are still, uh, we, I think unemployment is, is getting better, but then the the distance between classes I think is is the same, if not worse. So I think that's still that's still a reality. So I wrote, I just, I wrote through the whole book in one year. 
And then I took the second year to to do insanely compulsive uh, research. So you know, I'm a I'm a Virgo, so that's why. <laughs> um, but I I just I wanted to to just really do my homework, and I I read every issue of the newspaper in Colombia from 1989 to 1995, and then I read a bunch of Pablo Escobar books, and then I decided that in order to fully do my research, I needed to know what the weather was through mm -hmm. the years of the novel. <laughs> my God. <laughs> so then I, I logged on to the weather database and clicked through every day of the <laughs> And then when I did all that, you know, a year had gone by. <laughs> uh, but I was like, now I am ready to, <laughs> to do the second draft. Understandable. <laughs> um, and then after that, so then I, so then I uh, tried to incorporate all that kind of political research into the book, and I rewrote all those kind of historical juicy parts into it. Um, and then I did edits with my agent, and uh, we sold it. And then with the editor, I did more edits. It takes time. It takes <laughs> a lot of time. <laughs> OK, who else has a question? Um, yeah, I, th I think that is mostly true. I just wonder if, uh, well, m my family might be very different. Like there's this saying, um, when somebody tells you a secret, if you're good, uh, if you're good at keeping secrets, you're like a tomb. And then if you, if you're not good at keeping secrets, you're a tumba abierta, you're an open tomb. So, <laughs> so my so my mother would always say that she's an open tomb. She's like, okay, uh, but then she would say, okay, this this secret is ultra to, eh, ultra tumba, right? So it's like beyond the tomb. But then she's like, but then I'm on, I'm an open tomb. But you know, you be an ultra tomb. <laughs> um, so I feel like I always and my whole family is like that. They they're like, I'm not supposed to repeat this, yeah. but. <laughs> But isn't it like the story is way more important than any <laughs> secret? Like I'm gonna tell you the story. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, in my experience, that there are there are silences, but at some point the silence is always broken, and it's always broken in this way. Like you don't tell anybody, but I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> um, I thought I saw someone else. Yes. Yeah, uh, that was a hard thing to to navigate, I think, because when I when I was writing um, the first draft of the book, I was such a new writer that a lot of the feedback that I was getting from writer friends was was um, who happened to be white would be like, oh, can you explain this more, or can mm -hmm. you translate this, or I don't know what this means exactly, mm. um, and I would I would do that. And then, you know, right after doing that, I just felt so uncomfortable. Um, and I felt like I was, you know, giving a tour. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think that maybe that was part of the learning for me, getting to that feeling and feeling like I am a safari guide suddenly, um, that you never want to feel like that again. Mm -hmm. uh, so after, after kind of like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, doing what I what they were asking of me, and then that feeling really bad. I think I used that as a compass later, so that um, especially later when I was going through the edits, just like looking at each part and being like, does this feel too 
uncomfortable for me to do? And is it okay if, if it's just, you know, like if you work a little hard, you can probably get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was hard to navigate. Of, oh, uh-huh. Um, I think I think becoming an immigrant kind of helped with that process because when you are living in Colombia um, in this time, car bombs were like routine. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, there's, you know, there's rumors that there might be car bombs over here, so just don't go in this area. It was like you were talking mm-hmm. about traffic or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only when I came, I arrived here as, as an immigrant that it was like, oh, that is not normal. Mm-hmm. Like, no, <laughs> nobody is worried about, you know, that's not a thing. Or sometimes my humor would be too dark. And it was just because I had, you know, that's how we talk to each other. So then people would be like, that is not funny. <laughs> and it was just like all these moments of realizing that something was very different and mm-hmm. that I had, you know, something, you know, the circumstances that made me into a very different person. Uh, and once once I started to see that, then it became kind of more obvious to take this lived experience and uh, talk about it and to write about it. Mm. Yes. I, uh, you know, I always loved writing, uh, but I never thought that it was something that I could do, because, you know, my, I didn't know anybody who, who wrote books, um, and the books that we had at home were, like, it was, like, communist books, it was, like, encyclopedias, and then it was, like, esoteric books, so... <laughs> Just and the things that I was reading at at school would just be like all white men. So I just I did not see mm-hmm. how I would. It did not even occur to me that I could. Um, but I still loved stories um, a lot, um, and I just I would write like really short stories in my in my diary, and I would write like in, incredibly long-winded descriptions of things. <laughs> um, like I would sit before a glass of water and be like this glass of water, like, it just <laughs> go on. Um, and I, so I think I, my way around into writing was like, okay, I can be a journalist, like, that's mm-hmm. the thing that people do. Um, so I went to school for journalism, and I would mm-hmm. do, I would often go do the reporting, and, you know, do all the work, and then come back, and when I want, when I, it would be my, my time to, like, type up the story, all I wanted to do was to make things up. <laughs> 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 so then I started to just on the side like explore what that would be and I started to take uh, classes mm-hmm. and then started to see, you know, more people and kind of um, discovered, you know, Sandra Cisneros and, and then I was like, that is a thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like we had this similar upbringing mm-hmm. that it was really wasn't like I, I did journalism as well it was the only way that I was like okay well at least I could try to write a story in that sense but every time I would meet someone it would be like no this is a way more fascinating story in yeah. my head I'm like I can make this even more you know <laughs> yeah that's awesome what's another question you guys no oh okay Um, so I think we, we got our, our wave of feminism in Colombia rather late. Um, so we haven't had as much progress. Um, but there are, there are some exciting things happening now. There's, uh, the former FARC women have their own group and they, the city, the government is supposed to be helping them go back into, uh, civilian life. Um, but, uh, they, I always thought that they were, 
I'm just fascinated by the the former FARC women because they, uh, from what I've read, a lot of the times would join the guerrillas thinking that it would be a, an equal society mm -hmm. because it's communism, right? So it's supposed to be an equal society. Uh, but then it, like a lot of the times it wouldn't. Um, like there were, there were actually forced abortions happening. Mm. Um, so, uh, but there's, there's a lot of centers. There's like the Center for Memory um, that's doing a lot of work trying to get the stories of victims told. Um, and then there's the Center for El Centro del Movimiento Feminista, the Center for uh, Feminist Movement, um, and they, they're a hub that they do a lot, um, and they go into areas that have been upset by violence, and they do things like workshops with, with women who have been abused or who have been displaced. Um, so there's that kind of thing happening. Okay, I think we're gonna do one more question and then, um, yeah, you're gonna get your books and we're gonna have um, Ingrid sign them. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I do. Um, it was, so losing my memory was the happiest I've ever been in my <laughs> life. <laughs> because it was like suddenly you don't, like all that kind of stress and body weight that you carry, like suddenly that was gone. And I was just a grown woman with nothing but possibility. That is amazing. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. I'm going to remember that. Okay. Um, anyway, okay. Um, all right. So I thank you so much, Ingrid, for having thank us. Thank you, Lillian. Celebrate your book. Um, the book is called Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Go get it. Um, we're going to be signing some stuff up here. Um, and, yes, it was thank fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well. <laughs> uh, let's give them another round of applause. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.